I've started up again. Why not? So here are a few more stories for the next ten weeks or so. Today's effort is called Brothers Three. Inspired by my work with people who hoard, I worked with a man who hoarded newspapers, and then I learned about his brother who hoarded fruit and vegetables, and his other brother who hoarded stationery. Obviously, it's a tragedy. Brothers Three, Jack. My grandparents left Ireland in the 1950s when my grandmother became pregnant. They were not married, and they were both told in no uncertain terms that it would be best if they departed. They went to London. My grandfather found work as a clerk in a local government office, and they settled in the Wilsdon area, which at that time had many Irish connections. They had three sons: Hilary, Bertram, and Jack. My grandparents had both been raised as Protestants. And so it was not Catholic prejudice that had ushered them out of their homeland, but the more self-righteous and supercilious Church of Ireland version. They did not fit in well with the London Irish community, but because they were still Irish with Dublin accents, they also found it hard to fit in with the English, despite expectations of the capital city being a beacon of tolerance and inclusion. The children did well enough at school, but my grandfather was an angry man. Isolated culturally and without much in the way of social skills, by slow degrees he became depressed and withdrawn, and he drew the blanket of alcoholism around himself to shut out the demons. He neglected his wife, herself, lonely and adrift. Although I believe she did her best to raise her boys as best she could, she became exhausted by domestic drudgery and the lovelessness of the partnership, which had by this time been sanctified by a registry office wedding. She died, worn out, when the boys were still in their late teens, and my grandfather followed soon after, when the bouts of drinking became so viciously self-destructive that his body could not tolerate any further abuse. Three young men were left to find their way in the world. My father Jack returned to Ireland. This was a very peculiar thing to do in the 1960s, but he was hard-working and intelligent, and he found a position with the Electricity Supply Board. Through his own sheer persistence, as jobs of any kind were hard to obtain in the country at that time, like his father before him, he was an office worker, an administrative manager based in the Dunleary branch, just south of Dublin on the coast. He soon met my mother Morag, who was of Scottish descent and a schoolteacher, at a Saturday night dance. Less defiant, perhaps, than the previous generation, they married before pregnancy. And alas, my mother had to leave her job as a result. However, they were happy enough together, at least in the beginning, and provided a warm and comfortable home for me to grow up in. Warm, comfortable, and cluttered, for my father was obsessed with stationery. It started, according to my mother, when he reorganized his office at work. This was to ensure, for the first time, that an adequate supply of pens, ink. Paper clips, lever arch folders, and so on, was constantly available to the staff. Later, the obsession was taken home, and the house began to fill up with columns of paper, boxes of envelopes, bottles of different coloured inks, packets of sellotape, rubber bands, rulers, rubbers, pencils, hole punchers, staplers, and drawing pins. These were not items which he had commandeered from the office; they were things that he had purchased with his own money. We didn't need any of it. He never used this stuff that he had bought, 
but he insisted that it might be useful, essential even, for his family one day. You couldn't be sure. It was always a good idea to have stationery to hand. Stationery was the fuel of the modern workplace, and it demonstrated a diligence and a willingness to strive when your home was also bedecked with the invaluable tools of administration. He brooked no argument. Even when space became a real problem, when his little workroom at home was full, he started storing things in the bedroom, and then, when navigation there became challenging, the living room and even the kitchen were invaded by his munitions of office management. The situation was intolerable for my mother. It was not until much later that I was able to interpret his behaviour as disturbed or maladjusted, but she knew. Her own physical health cannot have been directly affected by reams of A4 and crates of bulldog clips, but they didn't help. She died when I was 17, of breast cancer, that she had quietly endured with that stoic resignation and deferred seeking of medical help which so many Irish women were made to feel was the summation of their worth. My father and I settled into an existence dominated by his odd activity. With my mother gone, there was some new household territory upon which he could encroach, and I was busy getting on with my life, although I was not properly addressing my grief or my future prospects. I reasoned with myself that at least this amassing of paper, metal and plastic, was neatly done. We lived in absurdity, but it was all classified and symmetrically stacked. And then, one day, he asked me to help him reconnect with his brothers. Hilary, we can't keep having this conversation. I'm sure I can still play, even if only a bit. Hilary, we cannot fit a piano, even a toy piano, into your flat. I could clear a little space. I have begged you to clear a little space. How many times have I begged you? You exaggerate. If only I exaggerated, Hilary. Look at us. Look at where we are. This is where you live, Hilary. And how, how can you live like this? Hilary always defeats you. Not like the others. With the others you stay calm. You let them ventilate. You let their abuse or their accusations or denials wash over you and you cut to the chase. Yes, you do. Be fair to yourself. You focus on the ways you can help practically. And then in time, they can move on to talking about their mental health. Support, monitor, advise, repeat. That's social work. That's inner London social work, at least. But Hillary, wonderful, intelligent, infuriating, indefatigable Hillary, always defeats you. You're standing just inside the door of his fourth-floor council flat in Somerstown. You can't get in any further. Hillary himself is a 70-year-old man. He is five feet two inches tall and stooped. He smells of bleach. He wears newspaper under his cap. Newspaper! Every day he pulls his little wooden trolley around the streets of the London borough of Camden and he loads it with discarded newspaper. He brings his treasure back to his flat and he stores it floor to ceiling, creating great canyons of paper. There is a television somewhere in the living room, but you can no longer see it. The bath is full of newspaper. The kitchen, with its gas oven, which Hillary uses to dry out damp newspaper, is every kind of hazard known to housing officers. As for the toilet, no, you can't even begin to think about the toilet. Hillary shits in newspaper and buries it in the mountains he has built. He washes his hands and his body in bleach because he can't get to the tap. Hillary eats from the bins of Camden. You have seen sandwiches on his trolley that are months past their sell-by date. 
He doesn't spend any money. No money at all. His benefits have stopped because he has too much money in the bank. Benefit money. The mad circle of finance goes round and round. You have to get the benefits restarted when his account dips below the maximum savings limit. But you cannot ever get him to make a significant purchase that is feasible. So, instead, a cheque is written for charity. Here you are, again, talking about pianos. Before that, it was a cruise to the Antarctic. Before that, it was antique pottery. And yet, and yet, Hillary is knowledgeable about these things. It is not just whim. He is fabulously well-read. How? When? You believe him when he says that he can play the piano. He is a remarkable man, but he is also a walking environmental health disaster. There is pressure from the housing department, from the neighbours, even the fire service. There is a notice seeking possession and a clearance enforcement order suspended for now because the mental health team, i.e. you, are taking action. But action means standing in Hillary's hallway having insane conversations about pianos. The control you never had over this situation is slipping over the horizon. The monstrous machine of authority wants to have Hillary sectioned and evicted. They want him cured of his compulsive hoarding activity. His flat has been forcibly cleared three times in the past two years, and yet you have not solved the problem. The clearances inflicted unbearable psychological pain upon Hillary. You had to restrain him when they threw ton after ton of old newspaper into the skips. You can still hear him pleading, writhing in agony like a torture victim on the rack. Stop! You must stop! There might be something important in these papers that we haven't properly considered. Bertram. At the end of every day, here at the market on Inverness Street, he can find what he needs. The fruit and vegetables discarded by the market stall holders. The bruised tomatoes, the cauliflowers speckled with dirt, half-smashed onions, apples split to the core. But all of it is fine, fresh produce, and it is merely the appearance that renders it useless to the trader. He scoops what he can and fills his sack. And when he has taken what he wants from under the trestles and the pallets, he digs in the large refuse bins to see what else can be found. He heaves his sack now onto his back, and he makes his way down along Camden High Street and past Mornington Crescent. The old cigarette factory, now modern offices, still has its two great stone cats guarding the entrance. Then he crosses the bridge and heads into the Regent's Park estate where he lives at number 54, Eskdale. To say that his neighbours disapprove of his behaviour is an understatement. The children jeer at him. The respectable members of the community complain. The council sends him warnings and the caretaker shouts at him. Everyone holds their nose when he steps into the lift with his sack full of overripe and weeping foodstuff. But he pays them all no heed. For when he is safely behind closed doors and he bears witness to the splendid mass of vegetation among which he makes his home, his bed and his merriment, he is as truly happy, so he supposes, as anyone on the estate. Of course, it cannot last. It never does. He has been rehoused five times over twenty years and has spent half a lifetime in temporary accommodation of one kind or another before persuading the housing department that he is due another attempt at independent living. You are a hopeless case, Bertram, said his housing officer. You cannot adhere to the terms of a tenancy agreement. But the mental health people say you're not mad. So we go round in circles. Tenancy, eviction, hostile eviction, tenancy, eviction. Not like his brother, then. He was deemed to be properly mad, or at least he thinks so. 
He wonders briefly about Hilary, and even more briefly about Jack. All on our own curious journeys through the world, he thinks. He used to see Hilary every now and then, wheeling that trolley of his around Camden. Now he can't remember Hilary's address. And as for Jack, well, best let all troubling thoughts settle and not be disturbed again. Here in his flat there is a beautiful serenity. The sweet smell of decaying fruit and vegetables rises up all around him, a fragrance of reassurance. He climbs up onto the bed he has made for himself, raised up above the cloud of small flies that feed on what he has brought back. Brought for all of them who share the haven, the flies, the mice, the rats. Why cannot everyone just accept that all creatures have their place, and there is no diminishment to any of us by ensuring access for each and every living thing? Jack. Well, how do you go about finding people that you haven't seen for years? Needles, haystacks, the intimidating enormity of the megapolis. It would be impossible, wouldn't it? And my father, of course, he hadn't kept up any kind of correspondence. All that stationery, but he never wrote a letter. I lost their addresses, he explained. Imagine that. Even with the extreme order of your disorder, you lost their addresses. But there is good fortune in the world. Through a mixture of deploying the services of the Salvation Army, who located Bertram, and simply writing to the London borough of Camden, who eventually realised that Hillary was in fact known to them and that he had an allocated social worker, it was possible to set up a meeting in London for all three of the brothers. A reunion. I am indebted to Hillary's social worker for sorting this out, though the mixture of pain, sorrow and amusement was very difficult for my father to process, and for me too, maybe in fact for everyone concerned. We met at the team base of the local mental health service. My father and I arrived first. We were ridiculously early. After a long wait, an overpowering smell of bleach pervaded the room, and Hilary entered, followed by his social worker. Hilary had a wooden trolley in tow, and he refused to sit down, saying that his back hurt. Next, another poor beleaguered soul came in, looking like a scarecrow, smelling of garbage. This was obviously Bertram. How my father stood out, with his neat attire and his own wounds well hidden. The brothers three, together again, all emotionally shackled by whatever forces had shaped their adult lives. They were obviously delighted to see their siblings, delighted but also terrified. How could any of them account for what had happened since they had last met? How clear to each was the terror and fragility of the others? But then they had survived, all of them, and that surely was not inconsiderable, given the underlying fractures in their psyches. And so proceeded something akin to the Mad Hatter's party. Tea and biscuits were served. Eventually, Hilary sat down. After ten minutes of monosyllabic grunting, Bertram decided to shake everyone's hand. Hilary risked a few childhood memories. My father laughed. Bertram wondered what had happened to his violin. His violin? Oh, yes, apparently all had been musically gifted, but not one now could lay their hands on an instrument. No one mentioned the aromas of decay that wafted through the air. Impeccable politeness reigned. The three men began to relax. The social worker confessed that he had simply no idea why Hillary was on the books, so to speak, and Bertram was not. Hillary insisted that any difficulties he had with newspaper were exaggerated. Jack, my father, 
brushed aside my suggestion that his own collecting problems were very similar to those of his brothers. Bertram denied that he had any problems at all, although the social worker was able to identify certain concerns of the housing department to do with rotting food. No one mentioned the word hoarding. No one mentioned environmental health law. And yet, three challenged men, three men who had been separated by fate, spent that few hours together in some kind of unique equanimity. The gestures, the facial tics, the flickering eyes, the laughs, the stares, the comfortable silence. Read family. Read the vast unseen ocean of experience shared in the earlier years of these timid, gentle, brittle men. And what did we know of their past, of their impoverished childhood, of the mundane malevolence of their shared world? They would not speak of it. In that moment, then, in that brief gathering of vulnerable need and shame and yearning, who were any of us to question the validity of their choices, behaviours or beliefs? They had carved out an endurance, an acceptance of their persistent hurt. We might hack away at their history to find a great cause of trauma. We might oppress them further with our psychological insight. But on that day, they were only old men, touching the expanse of the years that had passed, and finding and bearing witness to the stubborn ties that bind, even beyond neglect, even beyond sadness. Bertram The fuss is now over, he thinks. All that noise and commotion, all those terrible accusations. But he is as happy here as anywhere. He is, he indulges himself with this thought he knows, the John Clare of Camden. I live here among the ignorant like a lost man. In fact, like one whom the rest seem careless of having anything to do with. Well, that wasn't absolutely true. There were his brothers, weren't there? Far away and long ago now, or so it seemed. And here he was, cold and wet and huddled in a sleeping bag by the gates of old St Pancras Church. He would have liked to be inside, but he had not the courage to ask when there was a chance. A new spot to sleep in every night, sometimes every few hours. Is that not the privilege of those who make their beds under the stars? Not that there were any stars out tonight. And as for the kicks and the spit, the insults and the hatred, they had always been there in his life, hadn't they? Not with this much force or frequency, but there nonetheless. So let the rain fall, let the cold numb his fingers and toes. He would wake up in the morning and move on, or he would not. It was all the same. I am the self-consumer of my woes, he quoted to himself. Hilary. There is important information here, and you are simply discarding it. Come on, Hilary, this has to be done. It does not have to be done. We've gone over this so many times. You are throwing my life away. We're throwing old newspaper away. All my valuables are wrapped in paper, carefully wrapped. Don't block the hallway, Hilary. Please let them get on with the work. It will soon be over. But wasn't the absurdity of clearing the flat as glaring as the absurdity of trying to spend money? Why was it better or safer to throw out everything than to let it stay? When the flat was full, he slowed his collecting. When the flat was empty, he refilled it as quickly as he could. It was a fire risk again within a week of each clearance, and the ghosts that drove Hillary to insulate himself against the world were never vanquished. Futility, the end point of so many attempts to help. Jack. He never saw his brothers again, 
but that's a less sorrowful statement than it seems. There was no need for another encounter. They had acknowledged, however imperfectly, the fraught and frayed ribbons of their binding, and that was quite enough history for them to sift. Of course, the news of Bertram's death hit hard. He died of exposure on the winter streets of London, refusing, so we were told, all attempts to shelter him or bring him medical assistance. And when he learned that Hilary had finally, inevitably, become the victim of a fire in his paper-clogged dwelling, this other fading took its toll. My father lived on, however, for several more years and died quietly in his sleep. As he slowed physically, so his ability to acquire those items of desperate desire slowed too, and I was able to declutter a little. Perhaps as death approached, the instinct to protect himself from the encroaching world, for what else can hoarding be, became less intense. Perhaps this allowed some kind of peace to settle, on whatever lacerations there had been, which could never be articulated. Perhaps. Three brothers, then, all driven by the same compulsion to cloak their frailties in the solace of detritus. But the threat of the past, the menace of memory, or transgenerational hurt, or whatever it was, could never be withstood for ever. Hilary. I sit in the centre of the room, which is the centre of the world and the centre of all feeling. This is more than safety. More than comfort, more than calm. This is the bliss of my endeavours, the reward of hard labour. To be seated, enveloped in repose, secure in the swaddling of protection, insured against the clamour of the day. Do not think I cannot reflect on the damage done. Do not assume I cannot see myself as a husk of a man, huddled in the madness of his conflict. But my retreat to a sanctuary, to a soft, feathered cave, permits me the only true contemplation that may take place. Only from here, in the deep core of silence, in the eye of the hurricane, can I look at the universe unafraid. I see the rags and the tatters that comprise my story. I see the failures and the loneliness, the shadows and the scars. They too must be cherished, must be touched and blessed. I am a sentinel who stands guard over a broken life, but without complaint. The spark comes from the kitchen, I think. There is smoke and a pale flame. I know I should rise and douse the fire immediately. I know there will be little time between ignition and conflagration here, but the pathway winds deliberately to avoid direct lines of sight, it is already too late. This is the way I have fashioned it. Let there be fire, and let all that is mine be consumed. There is nothing here but fuel for the fury of heat. Such finality. And I have yearned for it across the years, beckoned it even. Now it has at last arrived. Waves of red-hot ash float over me. I was fissured to the marrow always by the clearing of my papers when they were ripped away from me. Now they rage around me in demonic delight. I am a furnace. I am a dancing sun, a whirling star in the hurtful night. I will perish in a sweet vermilion dream, and all my sorrow will dissipate as harmless dust. The hair crackles and splinters on my skull. The skin on my face peels away from the bone. My eyes drop into the hollow of my cranium, and my brain explodes. Immolation is release. I feel no pain, yet still somehow I bear witness to this brilliant, 
dazzling destruction. There is a fire in London, a fire that sweeps away the past, sweeps away all memory and slight. It is burning now through the layers of time, burning in dignity, burning in justice, burning and burning in the bleak and angry dark. It is burning away all trauma, all horror and all pain. Let us watch it now. Let us watch it burn. Thank you.